0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, the uh, fourth chapter. If you'll remember in our last lesson, we included the first verse of the fourth chapter with our lesson, because I believe it ties in there. I might go back and uh, bring you up to date on that, because uh, we find the humiliation and the judgment upon Israel because of their sins, and the twenty-fourth verse of the third chapter... We'll read from there through the fourth chapter, verse 1. And it says, And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell there shall be a sting, instead of a girdle of rent, instead of a well-set hair baldness, instead of the stomacher uh, a girdle, girding of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. Thy men shall fall by the sword. Now, this is the reason for what you find in 4, verse 1. Thy men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty... In the war, and her gates shall lament and mourn, and she, being desolate, shall sit upon the ground. Now read chapter 4, verse 1. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. So we find that in the aftermath of this destruction, that, uh, upon Israel and their humiliation in this judgment that God brought upon them, that the women would, the men would be so scarce, having so many of them slain in the war, that, uh, that, uh, seven women would take hold on one man, saying, We will eat our own bread. In other words, they would even, uh, pay their own way and, 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 uh, discount what was due to them according to the law as provisions by their husband in order to uh, have a husband, in order to not uh, have a reproach, because it was a pre- reproach upon the women of old not to, to marry and have children. And so they would be so desperate because of the men being killed. And then, so that, that first verse goes with the third chapter of Isaiah. And a better division would be in the second verse here. So you have Isaiah chapter 4, please, verse 2. Now then, the remainder of the chapter, you're going to find two things. Israel regathered and cleansed. That's verses 2 through 4. And then, Jehovah's visible glory revealed, verses 5 and 6. So you have a short chapter here with these two thoughts in it. Now then, uh, when you... uh, Begin to read chapter 4, verse 2. You'll find that the branch is mentioned, which refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, The branch, in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped in Israel. So you find that the branch of the Lord, or Jehovah, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it refers to him coming the, as a Seat of David and etc. And after judgment has been executed, cleansing is promised and glory is established on Mount Zion. So this looks forward to the coming of Christ. It looks forward to the future glory, visible glory of God with Israel. And it's a prophecy of that time of Christ's kingdom in the future. And uh, in fact, if you have a title over the fourth chapter, it says in my Bible, in the extremity of evils, Christ's kingdom shall be a sanctuary. So, after everything is cleansed and purged, will Christ's kingdom shall be a sanctuary. So let's notice verse 2 again, in, in uh, verse by verse. It says, in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious. So it's talking about a future day, a day of prophecy. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. In verse 3, And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. We're going to find that after a period of purging, that uh, God is going to show us that here his shelter will be set up for Israel and protection for Israel. So it says in verse 4, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, after a purging and a cleansing takes place, it says, And shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and upon her assemblies a cloud and a smoke, by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. And shall, there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in, in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from the storm, and from the rain. So, what we see here in prophecy is that Israel is to be regathered and cleansed at a future time, and then God's visible glory is to be seen in their midst. And those last Two verses deal with God's visible glory in the midst of of His people. Verses 5 and 6 show us that the temple area that had been level, burnt, and deserted would once again be a place for His presence. And verses 5 and 6 show us the things that are symbolical of His presence. And I think we'll deal basically with those. Uh, verse 4 does tell us that God will purge away the filth of the daughters of Zion. And then in verse 5 it says, And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and a smoke by day, and a shining of flame of fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now what does it mean, a cloud and smoke by day? Flaming fire by night? And God, God's glory being a defense or a protection for his people. Well, you go back to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, turn to Exodus thirteen if you will, twenty one and twenty two. If you don't have time to turn, just listen to it carefully. Exodus thirteen, when God was bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and during their wilderness journey, it says this in verse twenty one. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them by the way. To lead them the way. And by night in a pillar of fire. So you have the cloud by day and the fire by night. The same thing that uh, you find in our text in the book of Isaiah. To give them light. To go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God gave... Israel a sign of his visible presence all their wanderings during their wilderness journey to show them that he was with them throughout and this same pillar of cloud and fire was not only to lead them by day and by night it would lead them and it would lead them by night a pillar of fire it would lead them by day a cloud over them and it would protect them from... You know, there's a scripture that says, "...the sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night." It would protect them from the elements, but also from their enemies. In the 14th chapter, verse 19, it says, "...and the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel..." removed and went behind them and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel so that it was a cloud and darkness to them that is to to the Egyptians but it gave light by night to these that is Israel so that the one came not near the other all the night. This same visible presence was not only to lead and guide them but it was to protect them. Now if you turn back in our text Look what it says again, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5. A cloud and a smoke by day, and the shining of flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. God's protection. Upon all the glory shall be a defense. Psalm 91, verse 1 says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. So God is a defense. Psalm 27 and verse 5, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in his, in his tabernacle, in his tent. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. If, if the pillar of cloud and fire, and the presence of God was a guidance and a protection for Israel, then this is symbolical of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and the Christian today who is not only our guide by day and by night, but He's also our protector from all harm and evil. And all of these things symbolize the Holy Spirit's presence with us. There there will be a literal future fulfillment of this for Israel. And that's what Isaiah is speaking about. But if you take the symbolical meaning and applicable meaning for you and I, it applies to God's guidance for us today uh, by His Spirit, by His Word, and also His protection uh, for us as well. And look at verse 6. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and a place of refuge and for a covert from the storm and from rain. A tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, protection from the heat, and a place of refuge and a covert from the storm, from storm and from rain. Look in Isaiah 32, if you will. The 32nd chapter. Verse 2. 32 verse 2. Look. And a man shall be as an hiding place from what? The wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. So the same thing that's said of the tabernacle there in prophecy, as far as Israel is concerned, not only their immediate protection from the Lord, but their future protection. Even during the tribulation period, God has appointed a time of protection for Israel. But here, we see that for us individually, a man, the person, shall be this to us. A man shall be as a hiding place from the wind. So that Christ is our refuge from the storm. As rivers of water in a dry place, in the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. We find that He is all that to us. That Jesus is to us a shelter from the wind and tempest of God's wrath, and from the broken law, and from God's holiness, and from Satan's assaults. And he also protects us in all the storms of life, whether they be domestic, physical or material, or trials and temptations, or even internal rest. The Lord is there to protect us from all of those things. As a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. You know, it says, As rivers... Of water in a dry place. You know, there's a lot to be said about rivers of water in a dry place. There's great great excellence that the rivers of water would be in a dry place. Here it's spoken of as abundance and freshness and freeness and force. It takes a lot of force to bring rivers of water in a dry place. The place of humanity. The dry face of sin, the emptiness of sin, the outward circumstances of life, they're all dry, but we're to drink waters out of that that God has provided. And just like Israel of old, when Moses smoked the rock, the water was free, the water was near, the water was accessible, the water was abundant, and the water was satisfactory. And we find all these things are true for you and I. Have you ever gone through dry places in this life and say, well, you know, my prayers are just like they don't get higher than my head, and this is like a desert world that I'm in, and it seems like an awful dry place? God says He has an abundance of supply. And we just keep looking to Him. And, and can you imagine old Moses out there smiting an old flinty rock, the driest of all things, a rock, in the wilderness, And the waters gush forth. And so sometimes in the midst of all of your desert of life, there are streams of water that will come forth if we just uh, strike in the right place. And that right place is Jesus. Because once He was smitten, He gave forth the waters of salvation. And the second time, remember, Moses was not to strike that rock, but was to speak to the rock. And so after Christ is smitten or crucified on the cross... From then on, He'll never be crucified again. So all we have to do is speak to Him in prayer, and He yields forth the waters of life to us. So, I think if you turn to Isaiah 4 again, and look at those last verses that we've just read, you'll see that it's speaking of a great deal of uh, blessings that will be God's visible glory that will be revealed upon Israel in the future. It's symbolized by what they had already experienced in the past. And it symbolizes to us our uh, provision in the present and in the future. Okay, let's look at chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, if you will, quickly. Now this is the song of the vineyard of Jehovah's Lament. This chapter has to do with that. And you find that in verses 1 through 4. And then you have the judgment upon this vineyard in verses 5 through 7. And then he speaks of the wild grapes, verses 8 through 23. And there are going to be six different woes that are pronounced against Israel, showing the result of their sour grapes or their wild grapes that they have uh, reaped as fruit instead of the good grapes that God would have them to reap because he had provided so much by planting a vineyard for them. We'll see that Judah and Israel, they're this vineyard. In fact, we might read verse 7 just to show you. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. You see that? So he tells us who he's talking about when he gives us the parable here uh, so to speak of the a vineyard, parable of the vineyard. So let's begin reading with verse 1. It says, now, now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. It's a lot like the song of Solomon, isn't it? My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. Well, now, his well-beloved is Israel and Judah. God's well-beloved. And this vineyard is symbolical of his fruitfulness of his blessings toward them. And it says, And he uh, he had he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. You see what all he did for it? He fenced it in. He gathered the stones out of it, planted it with the choicest vine, the very choicest vine. He built a tower, set In other words, a tower was set up to guard the vineyard against uh, the ravages of man and beast to protect it. And he made a wine press therein. He made provision for uh, making the wine out of the the good grapes that was to be harvested. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. You know, there's a word for wild grapes that means to have a bad smell. It's not just wild grapes as such. But they had a stench about them. They were no good. We'll see what it's typical of in a moment. And it says uh, in verse uh, 3, And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. God is so grieved because it brought forth wild grapes. But He says, You be the judge... As to what, whether I've done the best for my vineyard or not. And God often permits sinners to judge out of their own mouth, judge themselves out of their own mouth. Because what could they say? What could Israel have said to God? God, you didn't provide everything? He, he already laid out what He had done. What can you, you and I say against what God has done for us? Say, Lord, you know, I have, yes, I've produced wild grapes. My fruit didn't amount to anything, but you didn't do anything for We can't say that. We, we're condemned out of our own mouth because He's already said what all He's done for them and what has He done for us in grace. So we can't go that route, can we? The fruit that they had produced was worthless. The wild grapes were worthless. God had done everything conceivable to make the vineyard produce good fruit. And they had done nothing whatsoever with it except turn it all sour, so to speak. In verse four, he says, "What could have been done more to my vineyard that I, I have not that have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes." You know, wild grapes are the fruits of the corrupt nature. The corrupt nature of Israel was, as well as your corrupt nature and mind. It is sad that instead of the the grapes of humility and the grapes of of meekness and love and patience and goodness and all the good things. That's what, what God looks for. That there are wild grapes instead of that of pride and and uh, pa- uh, passion and malice. They have things that are not what God would have them to have. And so we find that he says in verse 5, And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the heads thereof and it shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. In other words, God says, I've given you everything. I had a tower there for protection against man and beast. And He says, Now, I'm going to take away all the protection. I'm going to take, take away the hedge, and I'm going to break down the wall. The wall was for protection, and that would be removed. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 11, let me read some things that God says He'll do as far as Israel's fruitfulness is concerned. Begin reading with verse uh, 11. Deuteronomy 11, verse 11. But the land whether you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for, God cares for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even to the end of the year. What more could you ask for? God, say, my, God says, my eyes are upon it. It's the land which I give you. It's the land that's, that my eyes are upon always. Then he says, and it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul that I will give you the reign of your land in its due season. The first reign and the latter reign that thou mayest... Gather in thy corn, in thy wine, in thine oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle that thou mayest eat to the full. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then, listen, and then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shall shut up the heaven, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Turn back in our passage. What did he say in verse five? Isaiah 5, verse 5? You break down the wall, take away the hedge. Verse 6, I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged. There shall come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Because of what? They're and they're turning against God. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. He tells us who it was there. And the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry. And it means a cry of distress. So Israel had visited God's uh, had violated God's covenant and God had rewarded them by judgment. And they, he's going to show six different woes against them now, beginning with verse 8. Let me point out these woes and then we'll come back and deal with them. Look at verse 8. It says, Woe unto them. You want to mark them will you may. And verse 11 says, Woe. You see that one? Verse 18, Woe. Verse 20, Woe. In verse 21 and verse 22, there's six different woes. They all have a different subject matter under each of them. And the first woe is against covetousness. If you think God does not dislike covetousness, the Bible says covetousness is idolatry. God always has hated idolatry. He has said, thou have no other gods before me. You say, well, that's idolatry. But Paul in the New Testament says covetousness is idolatry. So that we can have a lot of things that are God's, besides an idol that's set up of wood or stone. There can be a lot of things that are God's, that are, take first place in our lives and putting God on the back burner, so to speak. And leaving him out of our plans. So the first woe is against covetousness. Verses 8-10. through 10. Notice it says, Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, that till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In other words, the covetousness and the greed, desolation on account of the sins of the nation is what was going to happen. Woe unto them that join house to house, and lay field to field. Till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In mine ears, saith the Lord, uh, in mine ears, said the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate. What does he say? You you wanted a lot of houses. Now you're going to not, not have any. They're going to be desolate. Even great and fair without inhabitant. You see, we are repaid with the same thing that we corrupt. They were greedy over all the houses and lands that they could get. God says they're going to be desolate and they're going to be uninhabited. See, what good is it going to do to have a whole desert of land in the world if you don't have anyone living in it? And and that's what happens to man. God knows how to deal with our very greed and our covetousness. And then it says in verse 10, look here, it says, Yea, ten acres of a vineyard shall reel one bath, a bath... Of wine was seven and a half gallons. Can you imagine having a ten acre vineyard and only producing seven and a half gallons? I mean, when it says ten acres, that signifies a yoke or what a yoke of oxen would plow in a day. That ten acres and that whole uh, area. Whatever was plowed by a yoke of oxen, they could not even produce when the time after the grapes were grown, after everything was done. We're not talking about just one one effort put forth, but after everything was said and done, and the time of harvest came, only enough grapes to produce seven and a half gallons on a ten acre. You see... It doesn't make any difference how much land you have if they won't produce anything. And they were laying uh, field to field till there was no place for anyone else. That's greed, isn't it? That's greed. Sometimes we get so greedy that we want it all and we don't want anyone else to have anything. But you know, I find out the more that we have, and the more we give to someone else, the more we have in return. That's God's plan. And look at this. And it says, and by the way, bath represents an ephah. Bath is the liquid, and an ephah down here is the equivalent to it, only it is a solid measure. So it says, and one bath shall yield one bath, and the seed of an Homer shall yield an ephah. A Homer was 220 liters, and it would yield 22 liters. It would yield one-tenth of the amount that's planted. Can you imagine planting your wheat crop and getting one-tenth of the amount of just the seed? That wouldn't be much of a harvest, would it? I'm telling you, that's pretty poor. Because usually, if you plant a third of a bushel of wheat, or half, or whatever it's supposed to be, I think it used to be a third sometime, I forget just exactly how much we planted per acre. But you don't take much wheat for seed. And sometimes it would yield 20 bushels, 30, 40 bushels to the acre in good land, in good year. Can you imagine what it would be to get only one-tenth of that third of a bushel of wheat per acre? Wouldn't be a cupful, would it? would be a handful. So God is saying that He knows how to deal with our covetousness. And he says, Woe unto them that join house to house, lay land to field, that there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In mine ear saith the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an homer shall yield an ephah. See, an ephah is the tenth part of a homer in Bible measure. And a bath is equal to the ephah, only the bath refers to liquid measure, and the uh, ephah refers to solid measure, or wheat, or whatever kind of grain it may be produced. Now then, the next woe, the second woe, is against fleshly lust. Look at verse 11. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue it until night, till wine inflame them, and the harp and the Uh, vial, the tabret, the pipe, the wine are in their feast and they regard not the work of the Lord neither consider the operation of His hands. We find this refers to habitual drinking and as a result a habitual drunkard. and ungodly feasting. This second war is against fleshly lust. It's against excessive self-indulgence. It's against when people turn themselves loose to indulge themselves and overindulge themselves in alcohol and feasting and worldly living. And strong drink here implies intoxication. Not just strong drink, but it's, the implication is intoxication. And music was common among the ancient feasts. And God is going to pay them exactly in kind. Look, they go overboard indulging in drink. And in eating, and in verse 13 he says, Therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge, and their honorable men are famished. They don't have any feasting anymore, see? And their multitude dried up with thirst. They don't have any drinking anymore. Not even the essentials. Not even the ordinary food, let alone the extraordinary feasting and and, uh, indulgence in feasts. They don't even have the common, ordinary food. And instead of the uh, strong drink and all the liquor and all the wine and all the excessive drinking, they don't even have the, their thirst quenched with the simple uh, necessity of water. You see, God knows how to reverse things, doesn't He? And that's exactly what He did. That's what He had done for them. And that's what He will do. And it goes on to say, Therefore, hell, verse 14, hath enlarged herself... Hell means sheol or the grave or death or hell or the next world or the nether world. Hell hath enlarged herself. It's a different word in the New Testament when it's talking about the gehenna of fire. And there is a hell that's a burning fire, but this is not talking about that. In other words, they're going to uh, be going, it's enlarged itself to swallow them up. Their deaths would be numerous. They would be swallowed up. They'd go to their grave. And their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it, looking to devour countless numbers of the Israelites who had deserved to perish. Now, they deserve to perish physically, but there are many that deserve to perish uh, spiritually. And God has prepared a place for all that turn against him to spend an eternity in the lake of fire and brimstone, where is the second death and a great judgment hereafter. It says in verse 15, "...and the mean men shall uh, be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled." And these are the kind of men that were participating in all the the, uh, indulgences that we spoke of before. "...and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness." In other words, uh, "...the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment." Someone might say, how is God exalted when all these people are suffering? What brought the suffering upon all these people? Did God bring it upon them or did they bring it on themselves? See, that God didn't bring this upon them, but God is holy and therefore He must judge sin. And you and I, we, we go do things wrong and then we expect uh, God to just uh, forgive us without any repentance or anything. They, They were not repenting. They were not sorry for anything that they had done. Well, now God will forgive us if we repent. He would have forgiven them had they repented. But they didn't do it. They were desecrating all the things of God. They were doing exactly opposite to God's Word. Rebelling against God. Would not listen to Him. Would not turn to Him for anything. And then, when God brought judgment... It was judgment against sin. It was not re- you know we had a message the other day I think that showed you the difference between vengeance and revenge. God God didn't say revenge is mine saith the Lord. He says vengeance is mine saith the Lord. And vengeance means that God has to judge sin. Revenge is when you hold a grudge against someone and you want to get even. God doesn't hold any grudges. He just says sin has to be punished. That's all God says. He, he doesn't have a grudge against any one of us. He didn't have a grudge against Israel. But he did have to judge Israel. And it says, But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and the God that is holy, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. That's just his nature and character. It says, Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of, of the fat ones shall uh, strangers eat. The third woe, and we'll get this one, we won't have time for all of them, time is about gone. but look at verse 18. Woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope, that say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. They're more or less threatening God to do anything about their sins. This This sin is of mockers. This is God's woe. I should say, not sin, but this woe is against mockers. Their sin is mocking God. And they just go headlong in sin. They draw iniquity with cords of vanity. And sin, as it were, with a cart rope. They're bent on evil. It's like you draw a cart. And they just say, we're going to pull this out right after us. We're we're going to take this with us. And they draw their wickedness as with a cart rope. Sin is with a cart rope. That... That say, here's what they say concerning God. Verse 19, let him make speed. In other words, let God do something about it. And hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. In other words, they're like the mockers in the last day. Remember, Peter speaks of the mockers. and says, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. And Peter says, for this they are willingly ignorant of. And he tells about the flood and about the judgment of God in times past. And things were not the same as they were from the beginning. There's some things have happened. See the difference? Well, God says that they're going to suffer their judgment. Their wickedness and mischief is going to bring upon them the judgment that is due. Look at verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good. Now, this is the fourth woe against moral insensibility. Moral insensibility. My, we could stop here in the camp a long time. Moral insensibility today. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. We have that today. We have people call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What well, do they do? They twist things around. They're blinded to the truth. They are self-deceived. People call evil good and good evil. I don't want this to shake you too much, but let me tell you. When you and I, as fundamental, independent, Bible-believing Christians, say that the only way of salvation, I'm talking about something fundamental, the only way of salvation is through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and us putting our personal faith in Him who paid the, paid the full price for our salvation. And that's the only way to heaven. Brother, people will call that evil instead of good. You know why they'll call it evil? They'll say, now, preacher, are you Riddos of the Baptist Church? Are you fundamental Bible-believing people? Now, you know that there's a lot of religions in the world, and there's a lot of ways to go to heaven, and everyone has a different idea about it. And you think that that's the only way? That's what the Bible says. But see, they'll call you and I evil because we believe something. And they'll call that evil which, which takes in every kind of plan that any man wants to muster up in life as a way to heaven. As good. That's good. Because you know we're all going to the same place. I doubt that. But some people claim it. I kind of doubt that, don't you? And the Bible says, listen. The Bible says, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Twice over in the book of Proverbs he says that. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. Look at that. You want to look at it carefully? There is a way. Singular that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways. See, each man has a different way. But the end thereof are the ways of death. One man has a way of salvation. He says, well, just be the best you can. Another man says, keep the Ten Commandments. Another man says, well, go to church. Become religious. Another one says, now you be a good citizen of the country and don't do harm to anyone. I mean, all that's good. I mean, that's all good good advice, isn't it? We know we should be in a church. We know we should try to keep God's Word. We know we should abide by uh, and all these things. And others say, I will live by the golden rule. Well, who shouldn't? But on the other hand, that doesn't make us saved, does it? What saves us is the redemptive blood of Christ. All these other things are good in their place. They're proper to be admonished. But But we better realize that some people call our... Good, evil, and they call their evil, which is telling people they can live any way they want to and still go to heaven. Set their own standards of morality. Uh, humanistic ideas. Uh, set up their own religion. As long as they've got a religion they're sincerely sincere about it, they'll, they'll make it alright. That's a bunch of Tommy Rod, if you'll pardon the lingo. God's Word doesn't say that. God's Word tells us there is a way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And He says, no man, well, no man, cometh unto the Father, but by Me. He is the one and only mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. There's not two, there's not three, there's not more than one. There's only one. And Jesus is that one. He's the mediator. He's our great high priest. He's the, the one and only way of salvation. He's uh, our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He's the one that we're to look to for salvation and not any other. No man, no woman, no person, no priest, no, no uh, uh, sainted, saint in heaven. None of them. You're to look to Christ and Him alone. And by the way, When you start depending upon something else, you're not fully depending upon Him. You're depending upon Him plus instead of Him alone. Well, we'll stop with that one. We'll pick up in our uh, 21st verse in our next lesson. This Sunday evening, the Lord willing... Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. This this will get pretty good. And then we want to get into the 6th the chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw also the Lord. I am lifted up. So thank you for your patience, your kind attention.